This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. This is episode 18 and tonight we are looking at Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue. Um, but of course I am your host, Elwood Jones, and joining me is my co-host Stephen. Hello Elwood, thank you for having me here. Um, obviously tonight we are talking about another... I'm not sure the right word to even describe it. I mean it's a leg- legendary anime, it's a real temple um title especially for classic anime this is what the title we're obviously looking at tonight um is really sort of up there with like the likes of akira and ghost in the shell and certainly the director himself is 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 just as noteworthy as the uh film itself so i'm looking forward to this one certainly well yeah i mean when you think it's an anime sorry it's a manga Anime, it's anime, it's anime, it's anime that I actually already owned and I love and adore, and I'm not the anime guy. You know that we're onto a winner, so yeah, <laughs> spoilers for later. It's um, <laughs> it's I mean obviously as we were mentioning on the last episode, I mean Satoshi Kon, he doesn't make animes, he just makes unicorns. As he only directed four features, and he did a TV um TV series or anime series, whatever way you want to describe it, which is Paranoia Agent, which was basically his his Twin Peaks in many ways, because Satoshi Kon, for, because we love to draw comparisons to Western directors, Satoshi Kon is constantly referred to as being like the Eastern David Lynch, even though the two are really sort of different than each other. Um, I think certainly in terms of Satoshi Kon, he's like one of those directors who's Probably more noteworthy for being more influential to Western directors than he is from drawing inspiration um, from Western directors as such. And certainly when you look at his work, you can see how he went on to obviously inspire people like Christopher Nolan um, with films like Paprika, which obviously Nolan has took like real notes for when he's come to make an inception. And certainly more noteworthy, Darren Aronofsky, um, his Black Swan is essentially perfect blue just reworked uh, for western audiences i would say in many ways the two are very comparable um and certainly when you look at anowski's filmography and certainly in like reckon for dream there's so many shots that he's borrowed from perfect blue as well and you can see why he bought the rights to perfect blue just so he could borrow shots from from this uh film as we'll obviously uh talk about a bit later but um before we obviously, as I said, before we obviously get into uh, Perfect Blue, I mean, what else has sort of been holding your interest since the last episode? I mean, obviously the last time we got together, we were hanging out with Zoe, and she was actually very complimentary about the show. She actually commented that she was uh, hanging out with her two favourite podcasters, which is always nice to hear. Uh, someone say nice things about the show, you know, just in case you listen to this and think we suck. I mean, no, someone <laughs> loves us. <laughs> One fan, Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what have I been up to? Um, so um, 
I've done a bit of writing, actually. I've done a bit of writing over at um, Eastern Kicks, mainly. Um, and bizarrely, there's been a couple of sequels. So I uh, I got to review the third in uh, Choi Hark's Detective D series, um, Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings, which is actually a sequel to the prequel. So I don't know if that makes it the third film in the series or or what or the sequel to the pre I don't know what it means um <laughs> which was a lot better than the second film but not a patch on the first um but 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 much more entertaining than I was expecting I was a bit dreading watching it and um I got to review so Eureka have released Jackie Chan's Police Story 1 and 2 in a limited edition box set blah 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 as these people tend to do all from 4K masters which obviously is a lie cuz they can only be 2K at most anyway but um I got to review Police Story 2 because I'd never actually seen it before. I love Police Story 1. Police Story 2, long story short, it's not as good, but it's still pretty good. Okay. Um, they're the main They're the main two things I've been up to, really, in Asian cinema land. Um, other than watching another film to go with this film, which I'll talk about later. Okay. I mean, Detective D is, I agree, it's an absolutely fantastic uh, Detective D, Mission of the Phantom Flame. It's a real standout title, and it's unique in the fact that they essentially killed the franchise. Well, it certainly seemed that way, but by the end of the first film. Um, so we obviously went the very random route of having prequels now. Um, so I'm interested to see where this third film goes. I mean, I've yet to see the second film as well, uh, which everyone, I think I keep putting off because people like yourself keep warning me that it's not particularly great. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, the the first the first film is fantastic, and it's Hark's one of the Hark's best things he's ever done. You know, I talk a lot about Hark. I love Hark as a director, and I just think it's fantastic. Spoiled only by the stunt casting, which kind of gives away the bad guy. But it's a lovely mix of of sort of fantasy and 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 costume drama, um, and and it's just it's just a fun romp. The second film. The cast is really good, but the film's just dreadfully boring and is bogged down by its water motif. Um, this one is a lot better, and I'm going to say I'm pretty sure there's going to be a fourth because um, I'm, I, I can see now that the fire, water, and um, air, which is this one, I've got a feeling we're going to have an earth one. That'd be exciting to see. I mean, obviously the character Detective D. I mean, for those obviously not familiar with the franchise, he's essentially a Kung Fu Sherlock Holmes, um, which is such a wonderful concept and they really established something really interesting with the, with that first film that made me want to see more of the series um which obviously by the time we get to the end of the first film and i think we are obviously going to cover i think the first one at some point in this uh in this this show we will obviously get to around to covering the first film so i think it's a real sort of standout title and definitely one that's worth further sort of evaluation um so um, he, the character Detective D is certainly one that I'm always interested to see they're doing more with the character. So um, the fact that we now have a good prequel to look forward to is, is quite exciting. So Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting character because it's like an old sort of, I guess, the equivalent of a, a really old early, early Chinese literature pulp character that was rediscovered by a Dutch diplomat who basically rewrote and trans, sort of translated and rewrote the stories himself. And now the Chinese have taken it back yeah. from Western eyes to create some uh, sort of a, a modern, a modern sort of, as you say, I think uh, a martial arts um, 
Sherlock Holmes, certainly in a, in a sort of a Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes kind of way. And it's not my normal type of film, but it's a it's a bucket full of fun. And um, sometimes that's what you need. Oh, yeah, definitely. So and uh, when it comes, it comes to Police Story, like yourself, I'm a big fan of Police Story 1, another film that is definitely on the, the schedule for some point to go back and revisit. And I think over here it, it's weird because we didn't, when we come to like parts three and four, they weren't released as Police Story three and four. They released as uh, Supercop and uh, Fair Strike. So it's it's a a series I think a lot of people don't don't realize unless they're obviously read up on their Chan movies that they actually made more than the two. And then uh, more recently, they obviously done those very dark sort of remakes of sorts uh, for the series. It's it's been a very weird direction when. I always saw Police Story as being like these light-hearted romps. Um, so when we obviously come to like the later ones, like Lockdown, and they're just really sort of Chandra and his serious drama stick, it, it's uh, kind of a bit, I don't know, kind of distracting, really. Um, yeah, you've had you've had two kind of reboots, haven't you? So you've had the lockdown one. You talked about the um, sort of when he's a mainland Chinese cop, and it's sort of more of a drama, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. Bless him. Bless him. He's getting on. He can't do all these stunts anymore. But it, it's OK. But then, of course, there's the one from the 2000s, the new police story, which is um, it's very much of its time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 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 neither one thing or another. But I think it's only police story in name, really. Um, and, and maybe the character's got the, the main character's got the same name. But yeah, the, I mean, the, the first one is. And, you know, we will talk about it. It is on our list. I'm sure it's on both our lists of films we want to talk about. Um, but actually, Police Story 2 is probably the run to the litter. Because um, I know that certainly Supercop is very well thought of. Um, not so sure about First Strike, but Police Story 2 is, 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 is interesting. It's sort of one of those sequels that's been pumped, clearly been pumped out at the time to maximise... Um, on, on, the, on the success of the first. But I'm not quite sure... It, comes to the right kind of fruition however eureka have done a sterling job and there's about three versions of every film on it on both discs um so you get the japanese cuts and the uk vhs cut and all sorts of other things and there's even an episode of the uh, long lamented uh, incredibly strange film show so to one of jonathan ross's um vehicles and he's looking terribly young and has some time with uh, jackie chan which actually i probably enjoyed more than the film fair enough um, speaking obviously of uh, directors, sorry, speaking of sort of those uh, sort of legendary critical figures, um, more recently on BBC Four here in the UK, we've had Mark Commode's uh, Guide to Cinema, which has been absolutely fantastic. It's a six-part series where he's, each episode sort of picks a different genre of cinema, uh, such as horror or sci-fi or heist movies or romantic comedies, and basically breaks down the genres um, into their sort of key elements and it's been a really interesting sort of series especially if you're like myself and love film theory it's a really great series and more um, excitingly because obviously Mark Mode uh, myself he's like one of my mental figures and what's even better about this series is the fact that he's co-wrote the series with Kim Newman who is obviously like up there he's like my uh, my main mentor and uh Sort of the grand poobah of cult film criticism is sort of like you. I don't think anyone sort of comes close in the fact that Kim Newman wrote like the essential volume on horror with his Nightmare movies, which 
If you are a fan of horror cinema, I think you definitely need to own a copy of Nightmare Movies and uh, also pick up a copy of The Monster Show as well. So you, between those two books, you will have a complete history of horror. Um, but then certainly it's a really great series. If you've uh, not seen it already, you can fully catch it on the catch-up service. Um, if you're outside the UK, I'm sure that you can probably find it through some service. So I'll, there's a fun scavenger hunt there for you guys. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, for myself, it's been, I had all these great plans because I was going away to the White. So I had all these great plans of being away that I would catch up on all these films that I've had put aside. And unfortunately, where I was staying was, let's put it nicely, it was a bit of a dive. So I didn't only lasted like two of the five days that I was supposed to be away for. Um, so I didn't get as much watch as I would like. Uh, but certainly one of the more interesting things I did obviously see where I had a bit of an angry binge. And I don't know about anyone else in your uh your feelings on sort of angry, but for my when it comes to his filmography, um, I find that I tend to phase out in a lot of his Western films that he's done, sort of things like Brokeback Mountain and Sense and Sensibility and I'm kind of only interested in sort of like his Eastern films, um, and those, so I've had a little bit of a mini binge, I had uh, Lost Caution, um, Eat Drink, Man Woman, and uh, Mo Keeley, uh, The Wedding Banquet, uh, which is a really fantastic piece of new queer cinema, um, I mean this is from 93, where again, being openly homosexual is still really sort of frowned upon so it's sort of really brave sort of filmmaking to make this film about a openly gay Taiwanese man who's trying to hide the fact he's uh, gay from his parents who are basically trying to get married off and through a number of circumstances he feels that he can throw them off by um, get, throwing a fake wedding to his friend so she can get a green card and uh, they unfortunately decide they're going to come to America and um, for a big wedding banquet for him. And it's just a really interesting little, I don't know how to describe it, I mean, if it's a romantic comedy or, or not, but it's just a really interesting film. And certainly, um, as one of its early films, it reminds you how good Ang Lee is as a director, certainly visually. Um, and this is something that we tend to forget, obviously, because now we obviously get so caught up in these western films like like Hulk and um, Brokeback Mountain that we tend to obviously forget like when he just sort of strips it right down um, even further than with like uh, House with uh, further than like Crescent Hidden Dragon um, just how great he can be with just working with like dialogue and sort of simple camera setups um, so yeah I mean if you're obviously looking for to reevaluate the Ang Lee filmography, then The Wedding Banquet is certainly my big recommendation of this sort of last period of uh, film watching. I mean, Stephen, have you watched a lot of Ang Lee's sort of early films, or you not? Yeah, no, I I think I'm like you. I think I prefer his um, his uh, early Taiwanese stuff. Although he, he, his his career is it's, it's quite a duality, isn't it? Because like Last Caution was made after Brokeback Mountain and um uh what was the other one um i'm sure i'm sure he had another one but i can't find it in my list here but um yeah he kind of exists in two worlds um wedding banquet eat drink man woman absolutely i'd recommend um i'm not a huge fan of crouching tiger but that's like a 
a westerns westerns version of a martial arts film made by a easterner and it i, I don't know there's something about it i don't like you and but... kim are getting well <laughs> i was i was the other day i was talking to kim uh from game warp and we were, i was like saying how much i loved to take Hidden Dragon. I mean, the fact that when he came out, you would go to cinema and half the audience would walk out because they didn't get the wuxia style because there's no nothing to compare it to unless you were like coming up with like watching a lot of like kung fu cinema and stuff, and then you obviously knew the style. But yeah, she just she's not a fan fan of it even much like yourself. But I mean, I was I loved this art house badassery and the fact that. It finally brought together Chao Yun Fat and Michelle Yeoh. I was just like completely fanboying out the whole way through. And in many ways, I felt they opened a doorway um, for revivals of interest in sort of martial arts cinema. And it was sort of around that period that we got like Hong Kong's Legend, the label came across and started like re releasing all the Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee movies and stuff. So I think it opened up a lot of doors um, and in many ways sort of paved the way for the the likes of Hero and um, Has and Fly Daggers and Curse of the Golden Flower. So it uh, certainly opened a lot of doors, but I think as time's gone on, a lot of people have sort of, I think they've, they've, they've got over it, um, where myself, for some reason, I, I've really, I still really enjoy it. There's so many scenes in it I really love. Um, and obviously there's people like yourself, Stephen, who don't like it. So um, Maybe you don't like it's too strong. I just feel it's a, it's a bit like... Um a mixtape of covers um it, it, it it's got all the constituent components and as a gateway movie as you described you know it not it did introduce it ena- enabled some foreign um, some Asian cinema to come over here certainly in the martial arts in the wuxia world um uh, but but i just as, as a film i just feel it's like a greatest hits package of cover versions yeah. um but it's fine, but I mean, like his Hulk. Um, for the first twenty, thirty minutes of the Hulk, when he's got all the the clever, not the clever, but he's got all the sort of the comic book pages thing going on, and I saw that in the cinema, and I thought, yeah, that's it, that's what I want to see. And then he turned into a dreadful mess um, at the end. But it, you know, you can't knock the guy's success rate, can you? It's just his 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 Taiwanese films are a lot different to the majority of his. Um, western western output um it's a very interesting director and probably i suppose dollar for dollar probably the most successful eastern director to work in hollywood i'm just weighing it i'm weighing it up because the only one i can think of is he would be like john woo um who would sort of come close i'm trying to think how much money did face off make <laughs> um compared to yeah. like brother Mountain, but i think you're definitely right there um he does food for very well. As certainly, well. in terms of of awards, shall we say them? Yes. Oh, <laughs> unquestionably. So I think I think no one comes even close to sort of Ang Lee's success in terms of like awards. I mean, he he got double Khan's wins with like winning Broadback Mountain, and then he went back and obviously won with Lost Caution. So yeah, he's definitely a favourite of, of the critics and certainly the awards uh, circuit as well. So. I think the man, he just needs to go back and shoot some more food porn because when you look at things like The Wedding Banquet and certainly Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, the opening sort of 10, 15 minutes is just basically uh, this this elder chef preparing this elaborate banquet lunch for his daughters and just the food preparation. I mean, this is it's just exquisite. I mean, I've not seen 
food prep sort of shot like this since I saw like Marie Antoinette. Yeah, which it, it, it's food porn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is you know if you're someone like myself who's food motivated, it's it's absolutely fascinating to watch someone prepare food and just like it be like the most fascinating thing. There's no like dialogue or anything like that happening. It's just you're watching a guy like prepare food with such artistry and such like to say exquisite detail. It's just um, it's just fascinating to watch, and it, I think it's a real it's it's just something I would love to see more from Angley, but I think at the moment he's sort of like too busy doing sort of heavy sort of dramas to go back and do something simple like this at the moment, but you know, can but hope. Before we do get onto our feature selection this evening, because obviously we're looking at slightly darker material this time, after the randomness of last episode's uh, Korean melodrama, um, Stephen, it's uh, time for us to take a jaunt into the dark side of Asian cinema and what have you uh, got for us in this uh, first episode of uh, our tales from the dark side of Asian cinema? Okay, so this is hopefully going to be a regular um, feature. I'll have a little, instead of my normal rants and rambles and lists of films, which I normally go through, I'll sort of try and tell a story. And tell a story about, like you said, like the darker side, the more salacious side, maybe, of Asian cinema. And today I'm going to look at a tragic story. I'm going to talk about um, Anita Mui, who we've talked about before. And talk a little bit about her tragic life and how it intersects with um, with the triads as well. So the Asian film industry is like every other film industry in the world. There's links to organised crime, there's suicides, murders, salacious gossip. So in this occasional series, I'm going to have a look at this darker side of Asian cinema and tell you some tales about some of the names and the famous names that we, me and I would talk about that you don't always hear or maybe they don't want you to hear. So today's story is a tragic one. It's about a Hong Kong actress whose life was marred by tragedy from the outset. A girl who went on to become probably the biggest star in Hong Kong, but couldn't find love. And whose life was tragically cut short. This is the story of Anita Mui. Mui was born Mei Yan Fang on the 10th of October 1963. Although the internet doesn't really um, decide whether she was born on the mainland in or, or in Hong Kong, but I suspect the latter is true. She was born into poverty, the youngest of four children, and raised by her single-parent mother. Mui never knew her father. She had to drop out of school in her early teens after her mother's bar burned down in a fire, and along with her sister Anne, she spent the days performing Chinese opera and pop songs at nightclubs or on the street, up to six shows a day. This worth ethic was well, typically Asian, I guess, but it had an effect on her voice. And she ended up having a vocal cord nodule forming, which meant she couldn't actually sing for a year and had to take a year out. And it had the effect of lowering her vocal range by an entire octave. She was encouraged to enter a local television competition, joining 3,000 other young hopefuls in the new talent singing awards in 1982 which was run by a, a tvb which is the shaw brothers tv outlet something still going today and it's uh it's actually started the careers of people like denise ho sammy cheng and Ethan chan just to name three of the more famous people and despite a famously misjudged wardrobe choice she won against all the odds so Anita Mui, to look at her, she's an unusual look. She's got big bee-stung lips, heavy-lidded eyes. She's often referred to in articles as an ugly duckling. And her singing voice, as I hinted at a minute ago, is really quite low for a, an Asian woman. 
But she went on to immediate success. She became one of the biggest stars ever of Canto Pop or, or Gang Tai. Um, Canto Pop is a quite an unusual, strange mix of Western balladry and high energy pop, um, sometimes with some more classically Chinese instrumentation going on. Um, the thing is, it's mostly in Cantonese and therefore its appeal geographically is quite limited. Most counterpop stars are only successful in Hong Kong, but they will spread out among, amongst the diaspora and quite often they end up singing in Mandarin. But back in the early 80s, she was one of the pillars of counterpop cinema. So she brought herself up from this, from this really quite lowly beginnings to being a star. And it wasn't long before she broke into cinema, as we've talked about before. Hong Kong stars tend to cross every, into every entertainment sector. And she quickly turned heads in, I think, what was her third role, but her first real starring role is in 1984's Behind the Yellow Line. Now, I've got to be honest with you, the film itself is a fairly by-the-numbers, breezy, romantic comedy. Um, fairly unmemorable. It's an advert, really, for the um, MTR, the, rail, the, the, under, the Metro Rail Network in Hong Kong. But it had a remarkable cast. Not only have we got Mui Star Turn, um, which is a little bit like uh, Madonna's in Desperately Seeking Susan, you get Maggie Chung's first lead role. And more importantly, this is an early star-making performance for Leslie Chung. Now, Chung and Moi will be the two pillars of the Hong Kong popular entertainment industry in the 1980s, and the two became firm friends. Chung himself will probably be the subject of a future episode, so I'm not going to talk too much about him, but I am going to have to spoil the ending. As few Hong Kong actresses have the range of Moi, behind the yellow line may just be a version of herself, her, her singing persona, but she could turn her hand to anything. Um, Go and have a look at her playing against Stephen Chow in Justice My Foot, where she out-comedies him. And probably her best dramatic role is Stanley Kwan's Rouge, where she plays a ghost of a courtesan who long killed herself looking for her lost love. Highly recommended in another film that we'll come back to. And you'll also find her in a couple of Jackie Chan classics, Drunken Master and Rumble in the Bronx, are probably um, her most famous roles internationally. She's a tireless worker for good causes, too many things to list, but she arranged concerts for um, people suffering from the secure, <clears throat> severe acute respiratory syndromes or SARS outbreak. She um, financially supported Operation Yellowbird, which is helping Chinese distance flee the mainland China after Tiananmen Square. She helped found the Hong Kong Performing Arts Guild, lots of other charities and projects. Yeah, she was a good person. Success. This, however, comes with a price. The Hong Kong tabloids are relentless at the best of times, and she was dogged by stories about a drug addiction, plastic surgery, her mental health, and she was romantically linked with just about every eligible man in Hong Kong. Jackie Chan, Zhao Wenzhou, Andy Lau, Nicholas Che, all rumoured lovers, possibly unfounded, maybe some of them were true. But she once said, I dare not get married because I have marriage phobia. I'm afraid my marriage will result in divorce. I don't want that regret in my life. Yet she also repeatedly said that she'd trade everything she had for a woman's basic aspiration, love. This was to escape Anita. And then we have probably the, 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 the core of this story is Mui's part in a particularly sleazy story involving the Hong Kong triads. And again, 
another subject for another day in general. And I'm going to take this very verbatim from Frederick Dannon's article in the 1995 uh, issue of the New Yorker magazine called Hong Kong Babylon. In the early morning hours of May the 4th, 1992, Moy and his from friends were giving a birthday party for her assistant in a private room in a karaoke club in Kowloon. Now, this is where Moy was in her element. She was a night owl, a party girl, and she was notoriously difficult to wake up for daytime shoots. But she really should have known better to hang around a karaoke club in this part of town because they are popular hangouts for the triads. Enter Wong Long Wei, who was a 14K triad member and a movie producer, which, as you'll find out, isn't that unusual a combination in Hong Kong at the time. He was another part of the club. He was there with his wife, but he learned that Moy was at the club and introduced himself and asked her to have a drink with him and sing a song. Now, Moy knew what this meant. This meant that she'd end up probably having to star in some triad-produced movie the next day. So she declined his invitation, but was very rude about it. And she also declined in English. Don't speak to me in English. I don't understand, he said. And she responded in English again. So what? Wong couldn't stand this, uh, this, this, this. This, this attitude and slapped her. Now, in a normal world, this is a minor incident and we'd all forgotten about it. But Hong Kong triads, despite uh, other than the 14K, didn't like him messing around with one of the actresses. The following evening, Wong Long Wei was leaving a restaurant in the Wan Chai district, Hong Kong, when he was confronted by three men, one of whom claimed to be Andalay Chan, who is also known as the Tiger of Wan Chai. Now, the Tiger's an interesting character. He was a racing car driver in his early 30s who had lots of friends in the movie industry, including, it was said, Anita Mui. And he was also a triad. His men slashed Wong Long Wei's arm with a knife, and Tiger himself struck Wong in the face with a mobile phone. How terribly 80s. Wong was hospitalised for the knife wound, but two days later, someone slipped into Wong's hospital ward and shot him fatally in the head. Mui immediately fled Hong Kong. Now, lots of people were quick to criticise Mui, including the ever-charming Jackie Chan, who had re- said he'd repeatedly warned her to stay away from nightclubs. And in the months that followed Wong's murder, she lay low in the United States, in Europe, in Japan. A grisly rumour circulated that the 14K wanted her leg as retribution, but there was no evidence she'd conspired in Wong's killing or shooting, nor she was ever charged in connection with either offence. The story reaches a, an even more grisly conclusion, where the tiger, meanwhile, had been rest, arrested back in Macau as a suspect in the murder and then released because of lack of evidence, was scheduled to stand trial for the knifing. On the 20th of November 1993, the tiger finished second in the Macau Grand Prix, but was immediately disqualified when his car was found to have an illegal modification. As he stepped out of his hotel room at 3am in the morning in Macau, he was shot dead by three men wearing motorcycle helmets. After that, the matter seemed to be settled. No convictions resulted from either the Tiger's murder or Wong's murder, or even from the knife attack. Mui, who had returned to Hong Kong by now, kept quiet about the whole affair, except one complaint in a Singaporean newspaper. Which man would want to marry a woman who was so much trouble? In 2003, under the pressure of media attention, she finally announced that she was fighting cervical cancer. The tragedy that her sister Anne had died of ovarian cancer three years earlier seems almost to be expected for this troubled woman's life. 
She didn't wallow in her illness. She chose to end her career in public. And in December 2003, she held eight consecutive concerts at the Hong Kong Coliseum. And in the climax, she appeared in a Western wedding gown, metaphorically showing that though she didn't find love with a man, she was married to her fans. At 2.30am on the 30th of December 2003, aged only 40, Anita passed away from lung failure brought on by her cancer. And with Leslie Chung's death earlier that year, it seemed that the two stars of a golden era of Hong Kong entertainment had ground that, that golden age to a halt. And even after death, Anita didn't find peace. A messy legal situation between her estate and her estranged mother went on for years and years. And a messy public auction where all her possessions and awards were nearly basically handed away for next to nothing. and Rescued only by a group of celebrities getting together with some fans to protect her legacy. Really kind of sum up the life of a woman who was adored as a daughter of Hong Kong but never found love herself. Thank you, Stephen, for the first edition of Tales from the Asian... Tales from the Dark Side of Asian Cinema. Uh, looking at Anita Mori. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, though, we will be looking at tonight's selection, Perfect Blue. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, Laverne, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great flits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. And we're back. Uh, you, of course, are still listening to the Asian Cinema Film Club. And if you haven't done already, please do hit that like or subscribe button, whether you're listening to us on iTunes or Podomatic or through thatmomentin.com, where you can find our complete archive. Uh, you can also check out our blog, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com, uh, which, again, has our the archive as well as um, other fun written pieces that we've, we put up there. And uh, as well, we've also got our ongoing mixtape series where we team up with a friend of the show, Steph, uh, to bring put together a little mixtape each month of, you know, the songs uh, that have been really sort of holding our interest. So, um, so far on the, on the tape, we've seen the likes of AOA, Okafina, uh, G-Dragon, Joanna Wong, A-May, and coming up, uh, we have got... The likes of Brown Eyed Girls, we've got Ladybeard, um, as well as Seagull Screaming Kisser Kisser. So lots of uh, exciting things to come, as well as uh, some great stuff on the tape already. Um, selected tracks of which you can find as well on Spotify, on the playlist that we put up uh, there as well. Uh, we will be also putting together a YouTube playlist as well, because uh, we post all the YouTube videos on there, and just to... No, make it a little easier for you to listen to it in one uh, big old box set. Um, but tonight we are obviously talking about Perfect Blue. As we said, this is a real tempo. It's like a real sort of grandstand title. Uh, when we talk about Asian cinema, there are certain titles that have stood the test of time and are now basically used as the benchmark from which all anime is measured against. 
Um, obviously, at the top of the pile, we have thought the likes of Akira, and then we go down a little further, and we have things like Ghost in the Shell, which obviously we looked at on our debut episode. Um, and from there, we have things such as like Ninja Scroll, and Perfect Blue is certainly one of those titles that is up there. It was a title that made people reevaluate what they thought, not just of anime, but also what is possible within the animated format just generally and here we have an anime movie which goes against the grain in many ways of all the things that were so popular in the fact that there are no giant robots there's no psychic schoolgirls. there's none of these usual tropes that we expected to see from anime i mean this is a modern day set story it's a psychological thriller with very sort of hitchcock themes and that run throughout it, and at the same time, has got many surreal elements. Obviously, drawing, making comparisons being drawn uh, between Satoshi Kon, the director, and David Lynch. And as we said at the start, I feel it's sort of like one of those clumsy comparisons, like when we call Murasaki the Disney of the East, which himself has obviously gone on record numerous times to say how much he hates the title, and especially when. You look at Murasaki's films, which are drenched in whimsy. Um, they are miles apart from, obviously, the Disney output. Um, but for a little bit of background information, for if you're not obviously familiar with Satoshi Kon, he started out um, working for many of the big directors at the time. Um, as you said already, he's... A director that only managed four films before his untimely death from cancer. He died at the age of 46. And being Japanese and the way that Japanese... Uh, the sort of general attitude um, to privacy that many Japanese people hold. No one really knew until um, he sort of died that he was even suffering from cancer. I mean, he actually took the last year and a half out. Um, taking a break from the film he was developing at the time, Dreaming Machine, to just uh, basically try and battle his uh, illness. But unfortunately, it didn't consume him, and he died in 2010 at the age of 46. Stephen, I mean, obviously, for Satoshi Kon, I mean, where did your sort of first interest in the director obviously come from? Oh my god, this film's 21 years old. I know, I really... <laughs> everything I like is now coming in, it's like, remember this 21 years ago? It's like, Lewis is 30 years old, and I'm like, god, that only seems like yesterday. Oh, indeed. So, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on record, I'm not a big anime guy, um, but this early on in my interest in Asian cinema, this has been pointed at me. So it's got to be in the early 2000s. Um, so Perfect Blue was my first entry to it. Um, I've seen, I think I've seen everything else he's done in terms of feature films. I've also seen his very first um, film he's involved with, World Department Horror, which he wrote. But um, that's a live action thing. But, you know... To me, Perfect Blue stands above. It's probably my favourite. I, I hold it above Akira. I hold it above um, Ghost in the Shell, etc., etc. Um, it's just gloriously adult. It's got a, a dreamlike stuff going on. I can see where the Lynchian um, 
the, the people compare it to David Lynch, but it's not because it's it it, it it's not as willfully obtuse as David Lynch. Um, you talked earlier about it being more, well, certainly Paprika is certainly um, Inception, isn't it? Much more uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, and this is, yeah, Aronofsky. Aronofsky clearly has seen this film, whatever he might say about the influence of it, not just in Black Swan, but in, in some of his earlier work as well. Oh, yeah. He's, but it just. <laughs> he's very open in his love for Satoshi Khan. I mean, as you said already, I mean, he bought the rights to Perfect Blue. Um, and I think mainly not so much so he could remake it, just so he could borrow shots from it. Um, which is very clear when you watch the, the two, and you can see. There's a lot of very similar shots in Aronofsky's work that you see in this film. Yeah, but it's 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 whole the sort of the mature story, but not only that, and I think I said this the last time we sort of briefly touched upon it, is that it, the story is is also maybe not timeless, is pushing a bit, but in the last twenty one years, this this film I watched it last week again, and and the story it's telling is no less fresh now than it was then. You know, Japanese idols, their relationships with their fans, um, how the Internet affects people. Obviously, it's a bit charming, the sort of the, <laughs> the secrets of people hooking up to the Internet for the first time, which sort of does date it a little bit. But when you're on there, you know, the, 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 the blurring of who you are and who you are on the Internet, it's, you know, that's still absolutely valid today. Um it's animated beautifully. It's got a really interesting visual style. There's a little bit of your, your normal anime look to it. And then you've got the weirdest visuals for the, uh, I want to say the bad guy, but we don't really know, do we? <laughs> a stalker. You know, no one looks like that ever. And it's an example of a story that could have been told in live action. And I'll talk about that again in a minute. But it's, perfectly realized by being in animation not because they can show spaceships and things like that but because you can just show you can do things which you can't do easily or cheaply in live action in terms of sort of blurring reality without being uh, too overt about it the only thing i would say is that of course we have um, at the center of it the uh, what shall we call it? The, the, there's like a a staged rape, isn't there? Yeah. And the male gaze issues of rape in cinema, it's a bit leery. I I, I know maybe that was the point, um, but I, it, it, it does feel a little bit more uncomfortable, but not as uncomfortable as most anime that we're seeing at this time. <laughs> as, as again, as we've spoken about before, but that, that's, that's my only criticism of it. It's, it, it's tight. It's the, you know, the, the, the sound, the animation, the story, the, the ideas it's talking about. It's just a perfect package. Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly when we look at Con's background, because I mean, he came up, he's working with the likes of Mamoru Oshii, who did Ghost in the Shell, and Kashiro Otomodo, who did Akira. And this is like real anime pedigree that he's working with. And I think a lot of people, when they learned that he was going to obviously make his director or devil, I think they were expecting something 
similar to those directors, certainly something a little more futuristic. And um, he, in particular, I mean, he worked on Onomoto's Onibus Memories, and this it, it's a completely different direction that he obviously goes for for his directorial debut. Because here we obviously got this blending of reality and fantasy, which become like one of the key themes within his work. Um, now. The film itself is based on uh, Yoshiku Takasushi's novel, the same name. And if you're obviously not familiar with the story, it basically follows Mima, and she's a member of a J-pop group called Cham, and she decides that she's going to leave the group and pursue her career as an actress. Now, this, of course, displeases many of her fans, and in particular her stalker, Mia Mania, who is kind of like this weird pig man, um, he's, he's sort of like the sort of oddball that you would find in Lynch's world. And he's, uh, she now finds herself like being targeted by like threatening faxes and mail bombs and basically anyone around her and certainly involved in this filming of, um, of this film that she's, uh, she's signed up for, um, called Double Bind, in which she's playing a rape victim so it's a real shocking change because I mean she's like basically it's like taking say like a member of the Spice Girls and they decide they want to become a serious actor and they're going to go off and make like an ultra violent crime thriller that's the sort of world that we're looking at here and basically while these strange things are happening to like the director and the producer of this production that she's now involved with um she finds that there's a website that's been set up called Nima's Room and basically documents her life as if she was still with the band. And she finds her world really being sort of turned upside down and pushed to the brink of her insanity as this world, like, the sort of world between the real world and the fantasy world become all the more blended. So it's, uh, it's certainly an unusual title and it's certainly when we look at anime titles, especially at the period, I mean, this is 97, so everything that comes out is sort of very futuristic, and it's normally got a very sort of ultra-violent sort of slant on it. Certainly the titles that were coming over to the West, as we mentioned already, I think it, oh, there was a lot of, like, really violent anime coming over, so you had things such as, like, uh, Devil Man, Violence Jack, and Legend of the Overfiend, and these were sort of, like, the popular titles, so to have something come over here and be like a psychological thriller that is designed and created for an adult audience it really sort of shook things up and it's understandable why we're still obviously talking about this movie because it's there's nothing that's really been made since that has come close to doing what this film does you mentioned already that um we've obviously got this scene that she's chief she's filmed um, as part of this film and where she's basically playing a nightclub hostess who is um, gang-raped. And this is a, a scene that you see being filmed and it's really kind of interesting because, I mean, obviously we have got those lingering um, shots of, of her being exposed and we also have the very risque photo shoot that she does as well. And I totally agree with you, so when it's shot from a very male sort of gaze, but at the same time, it's it's not shot with such a gratuitous sort of angle that you would see in some of the other titles at the time, because this isn't about gratuitous nudity. This is really about... Oh, no, it's not hentai, is it? No, no, I mean, no. It's, uh, it, it, 
it's something else. And of course, her, it's, he's, what he's trying to show is there's a, there's a kind of duality here. So she's a member of this pop group. Was it Cham? Is it? Yeah. Who, 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 who's, who's your classic J-pop three girls dressed up in vaguely sexy maidy type outfits who you see at the beginning. She's basically wearing the same outfit as a nightclub stripper. And, and so he, and, 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 and the fans of the pop group are all sort of middle, young to middle aged men, the otaku, yeah. all that. And the people in the club are the same people and they're enacting fantasies out. So, you know, it's not, it's not gratuitous because it's trying to show a, a, a duality between those two parts of her life. But it's just, um, yeah, just uh, I get, the world's changed, hasn't it? And you, I, sometimes you have to view things through the through the filter of time, unfortunately. Yeah. But I, I agree with you. It's not as um, graphic <laughs> as some things we could talk about. It's certainly a scene I, I completely forgot how graphic that scene gets because um, I was doing a, a, a screening of this for a Rabbit and. Um, that scene came on and I was like, oh, I completely forgot how dark this scene gets. And there is actually a, a key moment within this sort of gang rape sequence they scene where they take a break uh, in filming and one of the male actresses checks on me mistakes. It's like, are you okay? And, and like, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, it's okay. And you, you're reminded that, you know, this isn't a gang rape that you're watching. This is a simulated scene that it's playing, but it's very key to uh, obviously marking out the corruption of Mima's character and certainly it's sort of like the breaking point in her own sort of psyche at this point because she's basically been tormented the whole time by both like these writings happening in Mima's room we've got these like um, accidents and um, things which are befalling members of the cast and crew so there's all these things that are happening and she's not sure whether she is who she thinks she is um, so it's a really sort of it works well in scene. It's not just about, oh, we're just going to work some nudity in because we're making like this adult style thriller. And it's just sort of like another piece in lots sort of like the rabbit uh, hole that uh, Con creates here. And certainly the film would have gone sort of deeper into her psyche had he not been forced to edit it down. Um, now, with this again, just real proves the sort of talent that Con has as. The Edison is so fluid in this film that even though he's been forced to make cuts to his vision, it still flows and works like so effectively. Um, and I mean, you mentioned already about the fact that this is, I mean, this is 97, so nobody's really sure what the internet is. So when you have conversations of, of Mima like asking an assistant, what's the internet? You realise that he's kind of in the same sort of field as like when you watch the net and she dials www.pizza.net to order pizza. Um, it's a very it's it's kind of surreal to watch watch people have such an innocent approach to the internet now, especially now it's all like the backbone of everything we do in daily life. So yeah, and like you say, the, the editing, the fluidity of it is is remarkable. There's, there's a sequence I can't quite remember how it works, but you 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 think you're watching real life, and then you realise actually you're watching her acting in a film. But then you realise actually you're watching her thinking of what she's at, you know, and it's just seen. And I just don't think you can necessarily do that in live action. 
or you, you, you couldn't do it so easily the way it sort of just slips between what's real what's being filmed what's going on in her head and it's almost the same scene and it's just flawless um i also noticed i was just picking up my dvd here i'd forgotten it was an 18 oh yeah um uh, in, my, in my head, I thought, oh, I think there's some breasts, and I remember the rape vaguely. You know, I'm thinking it's a 15 at best in the modern age. But you know, this is a, this is this is sort of Brian De Palma, sort of adult psychological thriller sort of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the other advantages that Con has here is the fact that he was given sort of permission by uh, the author of the original novel, uh, Takazuchi as we mentioned already, and when the original script was came out, Common was openly very unhappy with how it would go, and he basically had the script reworked by uh, Sadayuka Muri, and Sadayuka <coughs> basically said that he was happy with the changes that they made, um, as long as they kept the three elements of idol horror and stalker, um, and other than that, they could make any sort of changes that they want, and this film was originally meant to be a live-action adaptation, um, and it really only got turned into an, an anime when the production studio got damaged in the 95 uh, Kobe earthquake. Now, there is a live-action version, which is pretty awful, um, and oh yes, it's directed <laughs> by, um, by the renowned pink film director, uh, Toshiki Sato, and that was released in 2002, but just avoid it. It never happened. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, it's apparent. You've seen it, right? I have. I mean, it's a lot closer to the book than to the, the anime. To is. the novel. But when you watch it, you realize that Con was, you know, on the right track when he makes the changes that he does from the book to obviously I think, adapt. It. I think, I think Jasper Sharp said it best. The, the quote's on Wikipedia, but it's on the Midnight Eye review. For the most part, it's downright boring. And I think that's its biggest crime. <laughs> it's just, it, 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 it does something completely different in terms of story, in terms of who's having the psychosis and so on and so forth. It, it's, it's completely different. But it's just people driving around in their Volvo and then whinging about stuff and then singing the most dire song over and over and then out of nowhere a character who you vaguely knew does an act of violence um yeah avoid this is like chalk and cheese isn't it yeah definitely um and i think certainly when we look at con's version here uh, what it really does well is to sort of like focus on that change in personality because obviously mima when she's introduced she's like the virginal pop idol and as she moves to becoming an actress, we see that she's like willing to do more and more to sort of make it as an actress. She's like determined she's going to break away from being just a pop idol. And all the while, we've got these tormenting sort of aspects of like what she's given up because the two remaining members of the group basically go on and have success as a two piece. And you, she's sort of like all the while she's sort of like struggling to make it as an actress and. She's questioning what whether she should like do these sort of like irreparable to like go completely against her character that she's spent all these years building up as a pop idol to fulfil her dream as an actress. And it's really sort of an interesting so sort of got this really sort of interesting sub sub 
but really about what people are obviously willing to do to achieve fame and what they're willing to give up and uh, what pieces of their sort of willing to sell off just to sort of get that one shot, which is obviously so sort of keen to me with sort of story. Um, and I mean, obviously, when we get to like that rape scene, it's sort of like the climax really of these sort of darker moments, these darker paths that she's having to go down um, upon, and which I think it, it sort of becomes like sort of key narrative of like the allure of Hollywood, isn't it? It's sort of like the the drawn in by the bright lights only to find the much darker underbelly as they try to pursue their dream. And I think that's certainly something that Con taps into with Perfect Blue really, really well. While we obviously focus a lot on Mimo, I mean, there's, there's some really interesting supporting characters here. They, and frankly, they all provide something. They're not like just there to sort of pad out the runtime. And I mean, we've obviously got like um, the office manager, Tedokoro, um, who is like constantly the one who's pushing Mima into these like risque situations. Um, and we mentioned already the stalker, Mia Mania, who he he's like unquestionably creepy. I mean, what did you think of this stalker character? Well, I mean, like visually, um, to start with, actually, I thought, oh dear, that's not very good, is it? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, because because he doesn't look like anybody else in the film. No. Um, but actually, that might be the point, because <laughs> he might be a figment of everyone's imagination, except he does appear in the opening scene. Um, so I was fine with it. I got used to it. I, I, I was taking a sort of Phantom of the Opera vibe from it. Uh, you know, the, the, there was this sort of this guy, this this warped, ugly guy that was sort of behind the scenes protecting her in his own flawed way. Um so yeah, I, I just took a fan of the opera vibe from it, but uh, it, it is a bit visually unlike the rest. He, you know, he he doesn't look like he's drawn by the same person, does he? No, he sort of, he's very visually stands out, and certainly we have that. We do see Connor actually borrow a shot from um, Lost Highway when he's there with a the video camera. It's like, and we put this up on the Facebook uh, page, comparing the two shots, and it's scary how similar the two look. Um, where in Lynch, obviously, in Lost Highway, is his own oddball character with a video camera. And here we obviously get Miramania with his, his video camera. And I love the scene where he's in his apartment and it's covered, like, floor to ceiling in these these pictures of uh, Mima in a pop idol sort of guys. And they speak to him. Um, he In his mind, he has this relationship with Mima and he's there to protect her from... Uh, from being corrupted by the the evil film industry, and I think it's a real. I mean, I mean, I'm trying so hard not to spoil anything here. It's certainly an interesting element to the puzzle. His character is certainly, and the fact that he's so grotesquely drawn, and so unlike any other character we see in the film. And like his his eyes are like <laughs> insect like, aren't they? They're in the wrong place in his head, and it's just it's creepy. And but it again, it's playing on our um, it's playing on our prejudices, isn't it? Yes, because we you know we we don't doubt for a second that he's behind everything. Again, I'm wary of being in spoiler territory. <laughs> That's, um, uh, there's something else I want to talk about where I can't, I don't want to, if we don't want to give away, because I think this is a, yeah, we, we spoil a lot of films, don't we? Yes, we do. And we're quite open about it. But I think this one needs to be watched by people 
and maybe we shouldn't overly spoil what's going on. No. It doesn't end well for people. Let's let's just say that. It does. It doesn't. I mean, I mean, what's that? I mean. The other thing I've heard it called, and so so we're trying to sort of draw comparisons about what films it's like, and one of the most interesting ones is that it was called a Japanese giallo. You know, so it was in that sort of Italian um, crime thriller with strange psychological bents on it. Do you think that's a a better description than... uh, and maybe some of the others we've had. I think it's certainly a Japanese Yala movie. Certainly, I mean, when we look at the Ice Pick murder sequence, um, which involves like this lengthy trace around the, the victim's apartment, um, that has definitely got got those elements in there. Um, certainly, it's shot with that vo- same voyeuristic style to the mm. violence um, that we come to expect from the, from those movies. I mean, um, I mean the whole genre. Genre. I mean, it, for those obviously not familiar with it, it's Italian thrillers, but they're sort of distinctive from being heavy in violence and sex. Um, the name Giallo, obviously, coming from being the Italian word for yellow, because the base they're basically released as the yellow paperbacks, um, sort of like very cheaply put out, sort of like drugstore paperbacks. And certainly, when you look at, as I said, you look at that ice pick sequence. And just how voyeuristic the violence is, because we're 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 basically playing we play the onlooker in this whole sequence. We're not part of the scene. We're basically watching this whole sequence unfold, and we're very sort of detached from the sequence. We're just watching it unfold, and the fact it it doesn't stay in one place. We've got this very lengthy sort of chase uh, sequence, so that it's drawn out. Um, I can definitely see where the comparisons are there um the ending as well is interesting um is all i'm going to say on the ending it's it's a very good payoff um it's his do you mean the sort of the general ending or actually the literally the last words that are said the last words that are said i mean it, it the last one the last shot of this film it's funny because, I mean, the whole film you think, oh, I've got this all figured out by the time we get to the end. And that's what I love about Perfect Blue is the fact that unlike some uh, animes and certainly some, some thrillers where they try to do something complex and you're not sure what you actually watched here, you you come away and you've, you've got you everything sort of wrapped up and then we have the final shot and you're like, maybe I wasn't right. <laughs> and... That's what I love about it. And certainly more times you watch this film, the more details you do discover. I mean, I've watched this numerous times. I mean, this is in prep for these recordings. I normally watch something once and I have my notes and I'm good to go. But I think I've watched this like two or three times before we, we recorded just uh, because I kept noticing like details in each each of these times that I hadn't noticed before. And I did, as I said, it's just such a, a tight paced story. Uh, there's no, there's very little fat in this story, and it's just so unlike anything else in that when you think of anime, um, it is just 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 something about this one I just absolutely adore. Yeah, it's a tight eighty eighty one minute, so that passes Stephen's test on on, <laughs> on length. But um, it's it's just it's just exceptional, and 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 I'll keep saying it: the fact that it stands up just as well today as it did when I must have seen it eighteen years ago it's um 
not many things do that. Usually, if you watch something from 15, 20 years ago, you see the, um, you know, you see the rough edges or you see it through the filter of time and you think, oh, maybe it wasn't as good. Eh? And uh, only really, really classic films stand up. And Perfect Blue yeah. is 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 in that panathon of, of classic films. Well, I mean, certainly anime, anim- animation generally, um, is sort of prone to that nostalgia bomb and the fact that sometimes it doesn't stand up to the test. Sometimes there's a lot of animation in that there which looks very sort of dated. And I think this is the thing with Perfect Blue and with like Akira and Gus and Show, and the fact that they still look as good as when they were released. Um, certainly with this film, the anime style that is directing it, it forgoes the usual styling. So there's none of the these overblown character body types, uh, none of the wide eyes look. I mean, this is a very sort of natural look these characters have. I mean, obviously, with the exception of our stalker character, who's, I think the fact that everyone else is drawn so human-like and very traditionally, the fact that he's so oddball-looking, um, really only makes him stand out all the more. So, um, and I think to to that extent, I mean that's why it still stands up now compared to like a lot of older anime, which is sort of looks um, a lot more sort of sort of dated and it's a little harder to watch. I mean, sort of when you look at things like Norsegov, The Valley of the Wind, um, or like A Deadly Pair, those sort of like old school sort of animes like Ranma One and a Half. Um, where you can sort of like place their sort of their place in time um, with Perfect Blue. I mean, you could release it now um, and it still holds up as well as it did back in '97. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about? No, I, I'm just really glad we. Um... We got to bring it into the uh, into the uh, Asian Cinema Film Club collection. Really. Mm. Um, further viewing, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a difficult one because all the films you want to compare it to are Western films a lot of the time. So, do you know that's exactly the problem I was having? Um, I'll let you go first though, because I knew you uh, did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Well, I mean, where to start with this? I mean, this is. Um, I think if you want something something in cons filmography to compare this to, I think from here I would go and look at the series Paranoia Agent. Now, Paranoia Agent is essentially cons Twin Peaks in that it follows this group of characters who are all tied together by this mysterious cult figure known as the Little Slugger who is basically this uh, kid on rollerblades with a bent baseball bat who's been going around Japan clubbing people. And these characters all have different stories and they all find themselves all interlinked with the key figure being this little slugger who we're not sure if it's a real person or if it's a ghost or what it what it is. And that's part of the mystery that the series slowly unravels as it um, goes across. Um, in particular, it features one of my favourite anime characters of all time, who is this shy, retiring uh, sort of librarian type woman, who is also a dual personality, and the other personality is as a call girl. So she finds herself constantly receiving these abusive messages from her alternate personality, 
And she feels that she's being stalked by this woman who she has no idea with, little knowing that it's actually herself who's leaving these messages for her. So it's a really great series. And it's one of those few series that I would be very tempted to break our, our sort of usual policy of looking at just Asian cinema, just to take an episode to look at <laughs> Soprano or Asian Because uh, I feel it's just a series that I feel that a lot of people, for one reason or another, haven't sort of discovered and a lot of people out there they've been saying how much they love Twin Peaks returning for its third season and then they're now sort of like oh we've got no more Twin Peaks and I'm just constantly saying we'll just watch Paranoia Agent it will give you the same kick that Twin Peaks did um, only that it's an anime so that would be my main recommendation here um, on the slightly more trashier end of things I want to say um I want to recommend the, um, I'm just getting the details up now, um, the 2002 thriller H. Um, now, this is a, as I said, this is a little more of a slightly trashier sort of entry, and basically, um, it has a serial killer named Shin Huan, who gives himself up to the police, and he confesses to committing a series of particularly horrifying murders on on um, female victims and basically he's been imprisoned and he's waiting his death sentence yet the killings do not stop and all these at the same time all these killings are sparing his sort of trademarks of his work and this is basically follows this detective you um sorry detective uh, Mian who's played by Yim Jung-ga, and his newly appointed partner, Detective Kang, who is played by Ji Jin-hee. And basically, they're, it's got this real sort of like vibe of seven to it, um, and basically they're trying to find out who's the one responsible for it. It's got a real interesting kick of an ending to it, and some people will see it as being a little trashy, but... I think if you enjoy Perfect Blue and looking for, for something a little, perhaps a little more disposable, then uh, H is uh, an interesting comparison piece to go along with it. But um, Stephen, I mean, is there anything you would put with this? I mean, you can choose something Western if you want. You don't have to go. Yeah, no, I, I, I was just making you go first in case you chose. I had two films, and I just wanted to make sure you didn't pick it. So. <laughs> and, and the one I thought you might pick is an, is another con film. It's Paprika. I was very tempted. Because <laughs> yeah. I love Paprika. Because, um, I mean, Paprika, I actually read the, the novel before I saw the film, although I was aware of the film. Yeah. So I only saw it very recently. Um, it, it's, it's a story. It, it, it's about a device that enables people to enter dreams. And it's almost a logical conclusion. So everything we were talking about, Perfect Blue, where people can't... Um, just a, a split fantasy from reality from delusion um it takes itself takes it that stage further with dreams and reality merging um he takes a source novel and takes it even further um and if you like inception you'll love paprika um but i thought that was the easy one um I had a, a, a different one. Funnily enough, I went to Korea as well, and I was interested in the the whole sort of girl band aspect of it, which is sort of 
teased at the beginning. And again, I do say there's a fantastic opening shot, isn't there, in um, in Perfect Blue, where it looks like it's going to be like a Power Rangers film, and then it turns out oh, at a, you, it's just um, brilliant. <laughs> it's funny you mention that scene, because it, well, as soon as that, then that scene started, and you've got the band who've got a smaller um, sort of like entry on the poster than this Power Rangers show that's happening, and it made me think of Spinal Tap, where they go to the, uh, they're doing the gig at the theme, theme park, and it's sort of like puppet show, and then underneath it says Spinal Tap, and it's like, oh great, does puppet show's got a bigger listing than us, and I thought that's exactly the same we got here. Uh, oh, it's just lovely. Anyway, so the whole, the whole sort of J-pop, but I'm going to go to K-pop. There's a horror film. Um, it's called um, it's got White Melody of Death or White Melody of the Curse, is what I knew it as. Um, it's a 2011. South Korean horror film. It's one of the summer horror films they put out. Um, I was mildly impressed with it at the time. Um, but actually, I think on a second viewing, it actually gets better. Uh, um, it's one of these cursed films. It's a film about a cursed song, believe it or not. Because we've had cursed videotapes and cursed this, that and the other. This is a cursed song. But it's really kind of interesting. And when you look at it's talking about the dynamics of the girls group of the rivalry or fame, the effects of fame, the desires, the resentment that comes out of being famous. So whilst on one hand, it's a, a fairly rote, supernatural Korean film of which I could name probably a 100 and probably will one day. Um it's kind of interesting because it's based in that world of music and in that they're regarding K-pop, which obviously has a it has, has, has great similarities with the J-pop stuff that, that Cham is is part of um, in this film. Fantastic. Cool. Um, well, I mean, that brings us to another the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. We hope you've obviously enjoyed listening and we will... Uh, be back soon with uh, Stephen's pick. I mean, Stephen, what do you have for us on the uh, next episode? Okay, I'm going to do a bit of a long story to get round here. So the way you spoke about um, it would be good if we could do an episode of a um, of a anime. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the same is that there is a Japanese TV series that I'd very much like to bring to our attention. I wonder if we could tie something like that in, but. And, and the Japanese TV series is one called Galileo. Galileo is based on a series of novels by um, Hiego Hagashino. Um, and, and there's a couple of films that have come off it, some TV movies and a TV series. And I love it very much. Um, but they made a feature length version of one of the novels called The Devotion of Suspect X, which is a really entertaining TV spin-off Japanese movies or superior for that, that kind of thing. But um, director Bang Eun-jin in Korea took that story, took that film, stripped out the main character and made this amazing, in my mind, spoilers, um, mystery drama film called Perfect Number. So basically it's a remake of a Japanese film, which is an adaptation of a Japanese book. And it's just an example. We often talk about... Um, we talk about Western remakes, don't we, yeah. of um, of oh, no, our very first episode, Ghost in the Shell. We spent a long time talking about what we were expecting out of that. And this is a Korean remake of a Japanese film. And it totally guts an entire character out and still makes a really entertaining thing. Plus, it's got a fantastic performance from one of my favorite Korean actors of all time. So, yes, perfect number. Cool. 
Um, as always, you can find our, the archive both on thatmomentin.com, as where we are a proud member of their podcast network. You can also find it on our blog, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Uh, if you haven't done already, you know, like or subscribe, uh, wherever you happen to be listening to us, be it through either those sites or Podomatic or iTunes. Um, it all really helps. And uh, certainly leave us some uh, leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. It, uh, we'd love to hear some feedback. You can also follow us on, on Twitter, uh, which is at Asian Cinema Film Club. Um, sorry, you can follow us on Twitter as well as uh, Facebook. Um, on there, we do obviously post uh, some interesting bits and pieces as well as updates of our new episodes being released. Um, coming up on thatmomentin.com, uh, if you obviously are a fan of the uh, podcast network, um, Cinema Recall, uh, looking back at Charlie's Angels, as well as taking, giving you a class on cult cinema with Scott Leonard and Michael Vaughan. Um, over on Game Warp, they are going to be looking back at Remember Me, the first title from Don't Know Studios, whose much-awaited uh, Life is Strange 2 is out very soon. Uh, they are also looking at We Happy Few as well. Um, over on TV Good Sleep Bad, uh, they are looking at uh, the series at number nine, as well as taking a look at some classic kids TV show with Animaniacs. So definitely plenty to enjoy over on the podcast network. Uh, all the shows are available on Spotify. If you just type in that moment in, um, you will get the complete um, playlist there, which you can follow and you can listen to all those shows and one handy playlist. Um, but as always, I'd like to say thank you to my co-host, Stephen. Thank you for having me as ever. And uh, we'll be back uh, soon. So thank you for listening. Kinono